Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. We will be in the first letter to the Corinthians as well as the second letter to the Corinthians for quite some time. We have just got it started, right? We are in verse 12, so we will pick up with verse 12 here in a bit. But before we get into that epistle, I did say yesterday that I would let you know what we are going to talk about tomorrow. And what we are going to talk about tomorrow is going to be either one of two things. I have received the question, what do you do with 1 Timothy 2.5? There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So in light of the saints, in, in light of Mary, what do you do with that verse? Well, tomorrow we will go to the heart of that question, and we will discuss in great detail what's going on there. And uh, the other question is, call no man your father from the very lips of Christ. Now, if we have time, we might be able to address both of those questions uh, now that I think about it, because (laughs) really there's a lot of continuity between those two questions in the end, because you're dealing with the principle of mediation itself. So God willing, we will get to both of those questions tomorrow. So when I say one of two, maybe we'll get to both of those each and every Thursday evening, I am going to be about the shorthand version and the longhand version, (laughs) okay? We have 27 minutes to be able to answer your questions, and so within the context of the longhand version, maybe we can get uh, to both of those. I am excited to, to answer those questions. Now, it's interesting, I have answered these questions already, but this is why we have set aside Thursday evening, that we have one evening that we can just exclusively focus to your questions, Now, again, I have made the point that this doesn't have to be reduced to apologetic questions, but I know apologetic questions are are the questions that are on your heart. But I do encourage you, if you have other questions about the Catholic faith, and this can mean questions about uh, church history, as I mentioned yesterday, canon law, they can also be questions about spiritual direction. And if I'm not um, formed enough in a particular area, certainly I will bring on someone, I will have someone join me to be able to respond to your question. Now, that being said, I did want to make one last point before we jump into uh, Paul's epistle, and it's regarding uh, how we think about apologetics, because we often define apologetics as a defense of your faith, and fair enough, apologetics is about a defense of your faith. But more specifically, the word means what is defensible, right? So what's the difference between defending your faith and what is defensible? Well, (laughs) if you are in the faith that Jesus Christ came to establish, then that faith is most defensible. So we should have confidence in our apologetics. We should have confidence in our faith when we come to understand that the truest expression of apologetics is rooted in the faith that Christ came to establish 2,000 years ago. Because ultimately, in the end, every truth of our faith is rooted in Scripture and tradition. So, 
uh, an important point because sometimes we might think to ourselves, well, maybe this is a question that can't be answered. Roll up your sleeves, work in the tall grass, and I guarantee you, I assure you, you will find an answer. Because in the end, every aspect of our faith, every aspect of our faith that we hold uh, so dear is rooted in, in Scripture and tradition. And so certainly we have something to lean in because it is, in its truest form, everything that is, quote-unquote, defensible. All right, that being said, let us get back into Paul's first epistle to the church of Corinth. And yesterday evening, I read, what, verses 10 to 17? And I think what I'm going to do this evening is just reread, what, verse 11 to 17 here. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right, so again, we left off with verse 12 yesterday, so we'll more or less pick up there. Now, in regards to these names, just quickly here, certainly we know about Paul. We've already talked about Paul. What about Apollos? Who was Apollos? Well, Apollos was a Christian leader from Alexandria up in northern Egypt who ministered in Corinth after Paul's initial stay in the city. How about Cephas? Well, Cephas is who? But Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, right? That is actually used throughout this letter. If you were to go to chapter 3, verse 22, uh, 9, verse 5, and chapter 15, verse 5, you see uh, Cephas. This is the only mention of the apostle Peter's association with the Corinthians in all of the New Testament. So it is worthwhile to consider that also Peter, right, the, the, the first pope, the one who Christ came to establish as the first papa of the household of God, was there ministering in the church of Corinth. Okay, now, yesterday I was talking about this idea of putting Jesus first, right? Putting Jesus first. The phrase, I belong to Christ, certainly suggests that one of the factions distinguished itself from others by what? It's allegiance to Christ rather than to a particular missionary. So they understood what it means to put Christ first. They understood what it means to put Christ front and center. Now, there is an interesting point to be had here because so often in our relationships that are broken, we want to mend that brokenness by getting someone on our side. But the question I pose to you is, what if your side is the wrong side? You know, I often have it said to me, Joe, you need to be my advocate. Joe, you need to be on my side. Joe, you need to help the other person understand that what they did is wrong and why they did what they did is wrong. Okay, you want me to be your advocate, but in the end, if I'm your advocate, but you're in the wrong, what does that say about your faith? Huh? I look at myself in the mirror on this point. 
If I want someone to be my advocate, although I know I'm in the wrong, what does that say about my faith? In the end, my friends, if we want someone to be our advocate, if we want someone to be on our side, then should we not want that person to speak truth to us? Even if it means <laughs> that the very person who we want on our side is the very person who challenges us, who calls us out. I mean, time and time again, my friends, not only in the gospel, but also in Paul's epistles, and, and we'll get to it later for sure as we get deeper into this epistle. Does Paul challenge us with the importance of reproving when necessary and chastening when necessary? Why? Because in the end, if we are not rooted in the principle of truth, and here I speak of truth as just not the virtue of truthfulness, but the truth of Jesus Christ, what do we have? Huh? What do we have? So if we are in the business of getting people on our side and all the while disregarding that we might be the one in the wrong, that is very, very dangerous. And why do I speak to this? Well, here, my friends, <laughs> you have a group in the church of Corinth who says, no, I don't belong to Paul. No, I don't belong to Apollos. No, I don't belong to Cephas. I belong to Jesus Christ. And even if Paul, Apollos, and Cephas brought them to Jesus Christ, they understand that if Jesus Christ is not first in the relationship, then every other relationship will not be what it needs to be. That's the point I was making yesterday evening. And we have a little bit of a different context uh, this evening. But important nonetheless, I was thinking on my way over here, we give our pledge of allegiance to the United States of America. It is fine to be given a, a pledge of allegiance to the United States of America, and especially in allegiance to the Constitution because of how it speaks to freedom and truth. But even our allegiance to the Constitution and to that law rooted in truth is only as good as it reflects the one truth of Jesus Christ, you see. So we should always be mindful of keeping Christ first. And I think these verses, although subtle, is a challenge to do so. Okay, how about this phrase, is Christ divided? You know, George Montague, the, the commentator in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture for Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you know, I think asks a, a provocative question here in the light of that question, is Christ divided? He says, what Paul wants us to ask is, is Christ cut into pieces? so that each of the four persons would have part. Or perhaps better, Montague says, is Christ divided against himself? Why does Paul ask a question here? And why are questions so necessary in our Christian and Catholic faith? Well, because to ask a question is to get the other person to take ownership of what they're thinking. And especially if you are asking a question in response to a question, because so often, we ask questions about the faith, and, and we do it either A, wanting to get the other person going, if you will, or B, not really understanding what we're asking. So sometimes responding to a question with a question is the best response. And certainly, you've got a number of questions going on here. And why, again, so that we might take ownership of what it is, in fact, that we are doing. You know, when you go back into the Gospels, Jesus Christ is asked 308 questions, 308 questions. 
and 305 times, he responds to the question with an answer? No, with a question. Isn't that interesting? Go through the Gospels carefully, and it is alarming the number of times that he is constant in asking questions. And so again, why? Because he wants the person who's asking the question to take ownership of what they're saying. So Paul is doing the same. Is Christ divided? It gets us thinking about a situation differently. Montague here asks the question, phrases it in another way, to get us thinking in another way. Is Christ cut into pieces so that each of the four persons would have part? Is Christ divided against himself? And we know the answer, of course not. Of course not. But in the light of the question, can we now better understand our faith? How about this question? Was Paul crucified for you? Now here is one of the earliest written affirmations, though indirect, of the saving power of Christ's death for those who accepted it. If you were to go back into Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, Paul will speak of the shedding of Christ's blood as an atonement for sin. We read what in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28? This is the cup of my blood of the covenant which will be on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. What we have to appreciate here, my friends, is that early on in the Christian church, Christ's crucifixion was not understood the way it needed to be understood, so it was on the forefront. Paul had surely preached to the Corinthians the importance of Christ's death and uh, the atonement for sins. And he reminds them of this because why? They are championing their different leaders as their saviors, huh? And Paul is simply reminding them that they, we, are only instruments of Christ. He goes on to really catechize them in, in his own mission. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christians were not baptized in the name of the preacher. Christians, my friends, were not baptized in the name of the baptizer. The Greek here says literally baptized unto the name. Elsewhere you see into the name. And what's interesting here, historically speaking, is papyrus documents from this period use this expression to mark the transfer of purchased goods from one person to another. Ascribed to the new name, the goods become the property of the new owner. For Paul, that is what baptism does. It signifies that the person is now, what, the property of Jesus Christ. But of course, we're talking about baptism. So it's not property in some utilitarian sense. No, it's about relationship. It's not, this is yours and, and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. Because baptism is the sacrament from which we enter into the new covenant life. So again, for Paul, baptism signifies that the person is now the property of Christ. In this case, the transfer of ownership is a what? A consecration. In the Old Testament, invoking the divine name on the people means that God has set them apart as his own, thus making them holy. So baptism into the name of Jesus is a consecration of the person to God and Jesus Christ. It is the first step into what makes us holy. The virtues of faith, hope, and love are inscribed onto the heart. So beautiful. Okay. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we should say here in verse 17 to preach the gospel, Paul is not minimizing the importance of baptism so much as stressing his primary obligation and task to do what? Evangelize. You see, my friends, as we were just talking about baptism as a consecration, it also is the genesis of a vocation, one that will mature over time. The vocation to evangelize and catechize. The vocation to bear witness to Jesus Christ in word and deed. And this is what Paul wants us to see, that it is one thing to be in God, and that is first and foremost. But out from that in God moment, that relationship moment, we must exist for others. If we're going to make him known, we must first come to know him. If we are going to understand the task, we must first understand the gift. If we want to understand the goal, we must be first rooted in our identity in Jesus Christ. You see, this is what is before us. And so again, Paul is not minimizing the importance of baptism so much as stressing the vocation that flows from it. And in this case, the call to evangelize. He expands upon this later in chapter 9. We'll talk much more about that then. So his words are aimed at certain Corinthians who have exaggerated the role of the minister of baptism and ultimately lost sight of the sacrament's purpose, which is to unite us with Christ. How about this phrase, not with eloquent wisdom? My friends, the power of the gospel to move an audience derives not from the messenger, but from the message itself. The best we can do as a messenger is to just be in love with Jesus Christ, huh? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you remember your favorite teacher in, in grade school or high school, or for those of you who are older, even college? Was it the subject matter that you fell in love with? For some of us, for sure. But who was the one teacher that you remember most? Probably the one who was in love with the subject matter they were teaching, And consequently, you in turn fell in love with the subject matter itself. You see, my friends, the best we can do as a messenger is to be in love with Jesus Christ. And the more we fall in love with Jesus Christ and we present the truth of Jesus Christ, the better messenger we will be. Because the attention is not going to be about what we are doing as much as who we are professing. And of course, in this case, the name and person of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants us to see. So Paul's mission, therefore, is not to please the ear with the eloquent speaking ability so admired by the Corinthians, but to move the heart by speaking of Christ crucified in clear and in simple terms. In clear and in simple terms. This phrase, by the way, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, can also be translated as, lest the cross of Christ be pointless. Remember what Paul says, I do not just preach Christ. It is not enough to preach just Christ. But no, Christ crucified because of the power of the cross, because of the power of the crucifixion, because of the power of Christ's death. To evangelize and catechize on the meaning of Christ taking up the cross Oh, there is great power in that, my friends. Sometimes I wonder if we haven't lost focus on that one truth 
It's so easy to get caught up in all of these other things, but we have to get back to the core. We have to get back to the center. And the core and the center, my friends, is Christ's crucifixion, his saving love for you and I, with the simple message that that Jesus Christ died for you. He loved you so much that he died for you. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful message. Pope Francis in Joy of the Gospel made the point Every good evangelization and catechesis always ought to start with those words. Jesus, he loves you. Jesus, he loves you. And I couldn't reinforce that enough. All right. How about verse 18 and following? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh, there it is. Well, what did we just talk about, huh? For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. (laughs) I love that phrase. And there he's drawing from what Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. If you go to your footnote in your Bible, you'll see that. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ, ah, there it is, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. Man, are those verses rich. That's verses 18 to 25. Now, I want to spend more time on this Christ crucified, but I want to first speak to wisdom. What do we mean by wisdom? If you were to go into any commentary you have, it it will certainly break down wisdom here because you see the word numerous times. The Greek is Sophia. Sophia. Maybe you have a daughter and you've named her Sophia, and you're probably familiar with the fact that Sophia means wisdom. It can also mean skill or insight. The word is used 17 times in this particular letter and 34 times in the rest of the New Testament. So the Greek word Sophia is found 51 times in the New Testament. Now, Paul's use of it here very much resonates against the background of the Old Testament. How? Well, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, and or Sirach chapter 24, verses 23 to 25, we see how the Torah is viewed as the embodiment of divine wisdom. How about 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 to 34? There we see how the wisdom books associated with King Solomon portray wisdom as the art of prudent living, how we are made to see wisdom as an art of prudent living. And certainly we know that God gave this wisdom to Solomon to instruct Israel and the Gentiles in the way of righteousness and holiness. Wisdom is also personified in the Old Testament as a craftsman of creation. If you were to Go to Wisdom, chapter 7, verse 22. There you will read about how God is a craftsman. How about Wisdom, chapters 9 to 11? How wisdom essentially directs human history. 
And this is something that, again, can only be gained by what? Insight. Consider God's dialogue with Job. Job's inquiring. He's questioning. He's constant and is seeking to understand why this has happened to him. Finally, God responds. And how does he respond? We know the narrative. Job, were you there when I fashioned the seven days? How can you possibly know that under my mantle of sovereign providential love, I move all things towards the good, especially for those who are good? So we are made to kind of enter into this within the context of Job as well. In the light of this, where does wisdom have its origin? From the beginning of eternity, right? If you were to go through the book of wisdom, you find all sorts of insights into what wisdom is linked with. The word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the Father's love, so on and so forth. So it is St. Paul, and remember St. Paul, who was once Saul, the prize pupil of Rabbi Gamaliel, or again in the Hebrew, Rabbi Gamaliel. It is Paul who relies on these traditions to make a sharp contrast between the wisdom that comes from God and the philosophical wisdom of men celebrated by the Greeks. For the apostle, Jesus Christ is what? But the divine wisdom of God. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in the end, the wisdom of God can never be equated with the ingenuity of, of philosophers and thinkers through the ages. Certainly, they help us to better understand the ways in which God works. Certainly, we increase in our knowledge and knowledge in of itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit and certainly a good thing, right? but it is not the same of wisdom. We must remember that Satan himself has a supreme intellect. He has great knowledge, but is he wise? No. Consider the temptation narrative. He looks at Jesus. He sees him fasting, and in his knowledge, in his supreme quote-unquote intellect, he thinks he has him right where he wants him, and he swoops in. But what he doesn't see is what wisdom would have allowed him to see, that the more broken he was, the more disposed he was to overcome him. You see, this is the stuff of the wisdom of God. The weaker we are, humanly speaking, the more we have the tendency to lean into God. And so Paul says, I boast of my weakness because it is then that God abides in me. And we should be boasting of the same thing, proclaiming the same message that here Paul is proclaiming. One that is what? Christ, yes, but Christ crucified. And this is where we will pick up next week. We will on Monday talk about why Paul, more specifically, in its very fine detail, preached Christ crucified, and why he uses this language here. It is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is folly to the Gentiles. It makes no sense. Why? Well, 
Stay tuned for next week. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.